Do you remember where you were 20 years ago, yesterday? I mean, many of us can probably recall exactly where we were and and what we were doing when we first learned about the events of 9-11. Thousands of lives lost in an instant. I remember uh, 20 years ago, I was arriving at school in the morning and I got to my class and the TV was on and I looked up and saw those images of, of smoke coming out of the Twin Towers in New York City. And I didn't really comprehend what was going on, but I at least thought in the moment, this is not good. Um, this, this is not good. And so as, as we recall these events, our hearts groan along with the Holy Spirit who groans for the redemption to come, who longs for the renewal of the world. As we remember these things on this anniversary, may it stir our hearts to continue groaning with all who suffer today, whether neighbors across the street or strangers uh, coming from across the world. As followers of Jesus, we pray for his kingdom to come. And, and we lament any time we see where his kingdom is not displayed in its glory and goodness. And so 20 years ago, I remember being in school, but just these past couple of weeks, many have headed back into school. Uh, I mean, how many of you know someone who has started school this month? Uh, you know, whether uh, children or grandchildren starting preschool or going to college, whatever the case may be, most of us know someone who is starting school, right? And, and you know, I'm really mindful as we enter into the season that this is now the third school year that is affected in some way by COVID, by the pandemic. And so I, I hope that, that we can be mindful uh, and pray for those students, for those teachers, for those school administrators who continue to face challenges uh, that have never been experienced before uh, and have have so creatively adapted along the way. Uh, We we lift them up during this time. But back when I was in school, I, I remember the buzz of that first week back. Uh, you know, you get your class schedule, you, you get to meet your teachers for the first time, you get to see who all of the other students are that you're going to be with. Uh, and over time, over the course of the semester and the school year, each class takes on its own identity, right? Each class kind of has its own feel, its, its own thing. Some classes became more casual and playful, kind of a fun place to be. Other classes were more strict and orderly. And, and so much of what the class became deter- was determined by who the teacher was, right? I mean, who your teacher was determined so much about the identity and the character of a class. And nowhere was this more clear than when you would experience an abrupt change in a teacher. I mean, did any of you ever show up at school one day to find a substitute instead of your teacher, right? And in an instant, the class transforms so often. I mean, I remember many students who thought, oh, this isn't my teacher, and I can do whatever I want today, 
right? And they just kind of walk all over the substitute. On the other hand, I remember a couple of times when the principal showed up in our classroom. That also immediately changed everything, but maybe in a different direction. But who the teacher is determines who the class becomes, right? This is just true, but, but the same thing is true in our faith. The same thing is true for us as people of God. Uh, as the, the 20th century preacher and writer A.W. Tozer once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous fact about any person is not what they at a given time may say or do, but what they in their deep heart conceive God to be like. In other words, who God is determines what we become. Just like that teacher determines what that class becomes. God's identity shapes our identity as God's people. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 John. 1 John, uh, there towards the end of the New Testament, uh, pretty close to the back. Not the Gospel of John, but the letter, uh, 1 John, uh, is where we are headed this fall. We're going to be walking through 1 John together for this next season. And the book of 1 John has this whole idea at its center. Who God is determines who we are. 1 John is, is really unique uh, in the New Testament and that multiple times throughout there are explicit statements that say God is blank, right? Fill in the blank. Uh, we, we just sang it earlier. God is love, right? This comes from 1 John. Uh, there are multiple times when John just spells it out. Also, throughout 1 John, uh, the audience that John is writing to is constantly addressed with deep identity-forming language. And so this morning, we're going to read the first few verses, often called the prologue, of 1 John, and then consider just a few of these big themes that we see throughout the book that we'll be looking at more over the next several weeks. And so let's begin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I'll step down and read it here so I can see. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word.
We thank you that you are a God who is love. That you are a God who shows us who we are as well. God, I pray that as we consider the words of your scripture this morning, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, 1 John, right? One of the first things we notice as we read these opening verses, just the very first few verses, is its unique style. Uh, it, it is very unique. Uh, this book is traditionally referred to as the first letter of John, but as we begin reading, there is nothing to indicate that it's a letter, right? You know, it, it just most other uh, letters, sorry, most other letters throughout begin in another way, right? You know, Paul to the church at Rome, Peter to the churches in Asia, but this one just jumps right in. Uh, there's in verse 4 a reference to writing, uh, and we have more references to writing throughout the rest of 1 John, but, but it's just strange. It's a unique thing. It just begins and, and launches straight into declaration, uh, another thing that we notice about the writing style of 1 John is how cyclical and repetitive it can be. I mean, just take a look in these opening verses. The phrase, we have seen, occurs three times. Once for each of these three verses that start it. Uh, and then again, in, in this opening part, there are three references to life. The word of life, this life, eternal life, right? And this repetition that we see has something very poetic about it. And this style continues really throughout the entire book, which has often been very frustrating for biblical scholars, people trying to study. You see, scholars love making outlines. You know, if you have a study Bible, the, the front page of, of any book is going to usually have an outline of that book. And scholars cannot figure out 1 John because it doesn't flow the way that a scholar wants something to flow, right? I mean, Paul's writings generally have a, a logical flow to them. Uh, you know, he generally describes a major point and then after that, he'll say, therefore, and describe his next point and continue going. Now, Paul's arguments can be very complex. Can I get an amen? Right? But they're still arguments. They still have a sort of linear, logical flow to them. But this is just not the case with John. Uh, scholars go crazy trying to make an outline of this book, and they just can't do it. You see, instead of making a linear argument, John tends to communicate in circles. He kind of communicates in, in cycles. He'll introduce a theme, and then he'll move along, and then he'll come back to it, and then he'll introduce another theme and move along, and then come back to it. On and on it goes. Some have described John's writing style as symphonic. 
right? Like you're listening to a symphony, a piece of music that has these different movements, but recurring themes throughout, these recurring motifs that occur. Or if you think of popular music, you've got a verse, a bridge, and a chorus, and it, you know, it kind of cycles through those a few times. John kind of writes like this uh, in cycles that are woven together in different ways. Another commentary that I was reading described the book of 1 John as a spiral staircase. That's a really cool image. You know, it says, as you go through, you move in one circle after another. But by the time you get to the end of 1 John, well, you can look down and you can see this big picture. You know, through John's repeated phrases and recurring themes, we end up seeing who God is and who we are in him, right? And so, you know, this is kind of what First John is all about and what it's like. Now, my guess is that depending on whether you are more right-brained or left-brained, uh, whether you're, you know, more driven by sort of that linear logic or, or kind of a more creative focus, that you will either find John's writing utterly beautiful or absolutely frustrating. You know, you probably fall somewhere in there. I mean, already as we've read the prologue, just the first four verses this morning, you probably find yourself either being drawn into the poetry of this or confused and frustrated by how roundabout John is being in just these first four verses. But wherever you fall on, on this map, on your experience of First John, my hope is that this fall, as we continue through the letter, that we would be able to listen to this symphony together. We would be able to climb this spiral staircase together and look back and along the way encounter the life of God. So th this is some of the styles. Now, another thing that the style evokes is a lot of echoes to the Gospel of John. Right? And this is actually why the letter is attributed to John. As we noted, there's no name at the top of this. Uh, it, it's, for all you know, purposes of just looking at it, anonymous. But it's very clear that, that it shares so much vocabulary and style with the gospel of John. There's just so many echoes between the two of them. And, and these echoes, back to John, are, are rich and meaningful. Uh, paying attention to these echoes will help us understand what exactly is that John is writing here. We kind of keep the big picture and think, well, what, what does this remind us of the gospel of John? Uh, and, and we see this in the opening prologue, uh, as well as other places throughout. Uh, but in, in these opening verses, 1 John shares so much in common with the gospel of John. Let me just read the prologue of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. And what has come into being in him was life. Now, I, I want to show you some of these parallels that we have between the prologue to 1 John and the prologue to the gospel of John, all right? Uh, the first John says, we declare to you what was from the beginning, 
right? And the gospel begins in the beginning. It was the word. First John goes on to say that, that they're declaring these things concerning the word of life. This life was revealed. Uh, we declared to you eternal life, right? And, and this, this word of life is also language that we find in the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. All things came into being through him. What has come into being in him was life, right? There are these echoes that are going on. Uh, we also have this emphasis that this life, this word is with God, right? First John, this eternal life was with the Father and revealed to us. Uh, the word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. So you can just see one after another all of these parallels, all of these echoes after one another. You know, in 1 John, it begins very similarly uh, to the way the Gospel of John begins, but this prologue also has echoes of the end of the Gospel of John, right? The, the prologue has this phrase here, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we have looked at and touched with our hands. And, and these descriptions that he has follow the very same progression of the stories after Jesus' resurrection in John 20. Take a look. In John 20, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. So John says, what we have heard. Well, it began with Mary Magdalene telling him, I've seen the Lord. He is risen. Right? And so John heard this word of Jesus' resurrection. But he goes on to say what we have seen with our eyes. Just a few verses later in John 20, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Uh, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Right, So it's what they have heard, but also what we have seen when Jesus himself appeared to them and said, here I am, right? Peace be with you. But if you remember the Gospel of John, there was one disciple who wasn't there, Thomas, right? And so Thomas hears about this, and he goes, I'm not so sure. But then Jesus appears to Thomas as well, and what does he invite him to do, right? What we have touched with our hands Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you once more. And then he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. And so from hearing to seeing to touching, this is the progression in the resurrection narrative. From the very end of the Gospel of John, and this is the very same pr progression described here, right as, as 1 John starts. From hearing to seeing to touching. So there are all these echoes between the Gospel of John and the letter of 1 John. And, and what these echoes between the letter and the Gospel show us is this. What was from the beginning— what has been heard and seen and touched, this word of life that is with the Father, is Jesus. It's Jesus. 
right? And not just any Jesus, but the Jesus who has existed from the beginning with the Father, who took on flesh and dwelt among us, who died on the cross, and who rose again to resurrection, right? This is the Jesus who John declares. And as we continue reading, we're going to see throughout 1 John that there are many in his day who were saying different things about Jesus, right? There are those who are saying Jesus was not the Messiah. Jesus was not the divine Son of God. He did not really come in the flesh. And John writes to correct these things. And today there are many who say many things about Jesus as well. So we do well to listen and learn as John writes to correct these false teachings and declare this is who Jesus is. This is who we have seen and heard and touched. But ultimately, this isn't the reason why John writes 1 John. Right? Look at verse 3. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, John does write to correct false teachings. But his primary reason for writing is to create fellowship. He does write to correct false teachings, but his primary reason for writing is to, to create fellowship. We declare these things so that you may have fellowship with us, with the Father, and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And this really is the goal of our faith. Not personal improvement, not moral perfection, but fellowship with God. This is the goal of our faith. And there is a word that John uses to describe this kind of fellowship over and over and over again throughout the letter. It's the word abide. It occurs more than a dozen times throughout 1 John. There's five times in chapter 2, five times in chapter 3, three times in chapter 4. Again and again, he uses this word, abide. This word, abide, also echoes back to the Gospel of John, where Jesus calls his disciples to abide in me as I abide in you. This language of abiding is one of the primary ways that John describes our faith. Our faith is one of abiding in God. And abiding is challenging for us, I think, because it is, it's not doing. It's abiding, right? Abiding has more to do with being than doing. Uh, it has more to do with identity than action. Abiding is about who we are, not all the different things that fill up our time. It, it is challenging 
But it's also very exciting because it is by abiding in God that we begin to discover who God is and who we are in him. And this, again, is, is the core message of 1 John. What or, or who God is determines who we are. This is what 1 John is all about. Who God is determines who we are. Now, I mentioned earlier, uh, 1 John, a couple of times, uh, just flat out says, this is who God is. So I want to look at some of these big pictures that we see in 1 John. Uh, about who God is and who we are. First, we see that God is light. God is light. We see this right after what we've just read in chapter 1, verse 5. John goes on to say, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And what this means for us is that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. There is no deception in God. God is not going to say one thing and do another. God can be trusted. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. There is no deception in God. God is light. And then later on in the book, God is love. He says this twice in a row in chapter 4, which really is, is the great climax of this book. And, and it'll be exciting when we get there in a few weeks. Um, God is love. And, and, and what this means is that God not only can be trusted, but he can be trusted for good. God is good. He is love. He seeks to build us up, not tear us down. He seeks to encourage us, not discourage us. He seeks to call us loved, not to cover us with shame. God is love. This is who God is. And, and John repeats this multiple times, which just shows we really need to let this sink in. God is light. And God is love. And so wherever there is darkness, uh, wherever there is deception and, and lies, that is not God. Wherever there is hatred and shame and guilt, that is not God. God is light. God is love. This is who God is. And remember, who God is determines who we are. If we think that God is dark and deceiving, or that God is angry and spiteful, then we're going to live a certain way, right? We're going to cower with some fear and some shame. First John is going to say, perfect love casts out fear. Because God is love. And so what does 1 John tell us about who we are? Well, again, there are these repeated refrains throughout 1 John. Uh, often throughout this letter, John addresses his audience. And one phrase, one word that he uses over and over and over again 
It's the word beloved. Beloved. You see this multiple times. You can see some of the references there. Chapter 2, 3, 4, over and over again. He just says, beloved. Beloved. As he gives instruction. As he, he calls his people. Now, some translations uh, kind of modernize that into dear friends. But the word that's used is the Greek word agape. As an address. Beloved. It's this word that describes you are loved by God. You are a people who are essentially loved. You are beloved. And there's another address that occurs over and over again throughout 1 John, and that is children. My little children. My little children. Over and over again. You can see this right at the start of chapter 2, over and over again throughout 2, 3, 4, and even at the last verse, chapter uh, the last verse of chapter 5. My little children. Over and over again, John speaks this identity into the people of God. And so God is light. God is love. Who are we? We're beloved children. We are beloved children of God. Again, he says this over and over throughout the letter. This is something we must let sink in to us. Because so often we go around thinking, no one could love me. I, I'm not worthy of any kind of love or affection. And so John's going to say, beloved, beloved, beloved. We're going to think, oh man, I'm, I'm old, I'm tired, I have a lot of life behind me, I, I'm all worn out. Who could love me? Who could care for me? But John is going to say, no. Your children. Your children. Because as, as we grow older in God, we become younger. We become more vital. We become more dependent on Him, like little children. As our faith grows, we actually grow younger. It's what Jesus said let the little children come to me. Such as these are the ones to whom the kingdom of God belongs. Who are we, beloved children of God? This is the identity that was spoken to Jesus at his baptism. He went down into the water and he came up and God said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. As we abide in Jesus, we too are beloved children of God in whom he is well pleased. This is who we are. There's one more component to all of this. Because verse 3 does not only say that we have fellowship with the Father and the Son, we also are called to fellowship with one another. And so we are not only beloved children, we are beloved siblings, brothers and sisters. Multiple times again throughout this letter is the command, love one another. Love one another. Six times, John repeats, 
love one another. We are beloved children, so what do we do? We love one another. We are beloved children, so we look at one another as beloved siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, this echoes back to the Gospel of John. Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. This is our primary marker of identity. How are, how are we going to know? How are they going to know that we belong to Jesus? Because we're people of love. We know that God is love. We know that we are loved. And so we love. Again, this is what 1 John says. We love because he first loved us. All of this comes from 1 John. And so, this is the prologue. This is the big picture of 1 John. My hope for us this fall, as we continue through this letter, is that we would fully enter into the poetry and the symphony, that, that we would walk up that spiral staircase together so we can look back and see the love of God that we can, can actually look at ourselves in the mirror and know that's God's beloved child. And that we can look at one another face to face and say, that's my beloved brother and, or sister in Christ. We would enter fully into the music and poetry and symphony of this. My hope as we enter into this this fall is the same as John's hope and writing it, that we would have fellowship with God, who is our Father, light and love. That we would have fellowship with Jesus Christ, his Son, by whom we know the love of the Father, because he died for us and rose again. And that we would have fellowship with each other as we live into our identity as beloved children of God, and love one another. And as we enter into all of these things, may our joy be complete. Amen.